it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week, we crossed the Tasman to chat with Eight Wide Brewing's Soren Eriksson. Soren's career in beer was inspired by Little Creatures Pale Ale and the gift of a Cooper's homebrew kit almost 15 years ago, as he was finishing a master's in biochemistry. A life spent in the lab didn't appeal, and so he embarked on a career as a brewer, brewing with New Zealand's Renaissance Brewing, where he also started his own brand, Eight Wide, that continues today, now with its own brewery. In the nascent Australian and New Zealand craft brewing scenes, Eight Wide was an early hype brewery, competing with the exciting imports from the US. With the craft beer industry measuring its life in dog years, that 13-year journey has seen a vast change in the brewing industry around it. And I was keen to find out from Soren what that has meant for Eight Wide and in turn, what craft brewers now can learn about the change in the industry. This is an interesting chat about creating a robust business and maintaining credibility through sustainable growth. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Soren Eriksson as much as I did. Soren Eriksson, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you. I, I have to say at the outset, I'm sure that we've had a conversation on the podcast before, but if it was, it was a good nine or ten years ago and it doesn't seem to have pulled through in, in the various iterations of podcasting software so I'll have to see if I can dig it out. How have you been anyway? How are things in New Zealand? Yeah, very good. Very good. Summer is coming. The sun is shining. The beer is flowing. Everybody's happy. <laughs> if you've got a beer and I, I do have to say that with the time difference you're able to have a beer whereas it's a little bit early for me to uh, have one just yet. What are you enjoying? Uh, this is our uh, Daydream Hazy Pale Ale. Nice easy drinking. Full of flavor. That's actually, well, we'll come to that because it's certainly when we did first meet, which would be a good 10 years ago, that's a style that just simply didn't exist. So no, we might come no, to that. Yeah. But let's just do the, a quick recap about who Soren Eriksson is. Yeah, I'm Soren Eriksson. I'm from uh, Eat White Brewing. Um, We've been in business now for 13 years. Uh, me and my wife started up uh, uh, the company back then in 2009. We started out a contract brewing, or or I was brewing the beer myself, but we brewed it at another brewery where I also worked as, as a brewer. Uh, that was uh, Renaissance Brewing uh, down in Blenheim on the South Island. Then four or five years later, in 2014, I believe it was, uh, we moved north, uh, just north of Auckland a small place called Walkworth and uh, yeah, we set up a physical brewery there and yeah, we've been brewing there ever since. Uh, everything is made in-house now. Um, it has been since then. Then uh, um, a few years ago, uh, right before uh, the, the great pandemic, as it is known, uh, we started up our tap room, which was uh, immaculate timing. Uh, but yeah, in a, in a small place called Matacana, which is just 10 minutes from, uh, from the brewery, uh, we store all our barrels. We do a lot of barrelage aging of beer. Uh, so we store all the barrels there, do some blending there and stuff. And then uh, we have the tap room there as well. Yeah, you're very modestly admitting that in 2011 uh, that I know of, that, that I recall you were the champion New Zealand brewery. Right. Uh, yeah, this is true. This is true. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is uh, well, it's, it's such a. I mean, it it really is dog years. Um, when you're talking about the craft brewing period, what we know as a craft brewing period. So, yeah. let, let's just go back to how you got into craft brewing because you were doing a uh, um, biochemical engineering. I believe you're doing a master's. You're in Australia studying that. Yeah, I was doing a master's degree in biochemistry. It was uh, uh, at a Danish university. I'm from Denmark originally. Um, oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, so it was at a Danish university, but I did my last year of it. I actually the last year and a half in in Australia. Right. So I first did a semester in Melbourne, and then I did the last year in Perth while I was writing my my thesis and researching that. And. That was where you were introduced to Little Creatures, Pale Yes, yeah, so we lived out in Fremantle, so uh, not not too far from Little Creatures. And uh, me and my, my now wife, uh, we went to Little Creatures quite a lot, probably at least once a week, uh, and got a taste for uh, for craft beer and what, what beer could taste like uh, when it wasn't just a pale yellow swill, uh, so to say. Uh, so yeah, we got an interest for, for beer there. And uh, for Christmas that year, she bought me a, a Cooper's homebrew kit. And yeah, I started tinkling around with that, and uh, and uh, yeah, the, the the hobby took over. And once I finished my my degree, um, decided not to work as a biochemist as such, and uh, uh, try and do this brewing thing instead. Which is biochemistry anyway. It certainly helps to to know what's going on on a on a microbiological level. Yes, we'll come back and talk about the circle closing on pale yellow swill and how many craft brewers have come back to light lagers um, in in their own lineup. But yeah. what was it about in the late two thousands when you came over? Was there a craft brewing industry at that stage? Had you been exposed to craft beer around that time? Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, around that time, we traveled a lot around the world, and uh, we did a couple of road trips uh, through the U.S. and then saw all the breweries over there. Uh, then obviously, we saw little creatures, as mentioned, and then also in New Zealand at that point in time, that were uh, at least a beginning scene of of craft beer. Um, I want to say maybe even kind of like the second wave of craft beer back then. Um, there had been some dabbling into it in uh, in in the late eighties and nineties. Um, not much that sort of really stuck on and and, and stayed mainstream as such. Uh, but there were quite a few uh, like little breweries around around the country that you could go and visit and and have to be on site. So yeah, we spent a lot of time like seeking that out and uh, and and try, trying new things. I have to stress that one of the things that we're going to talk about is the drastic change in approaches to brewing in, in, in the approach to the business and the, the thinking around what craft beer is. But we are stepping back to the time that this idea of craft beer for people that had grown up only knowing, I guess in your case, beers like Carlsberg or in, in my case, beers like Forex and VB, um, craft beer was a revelation and it was something that was new. Um, whereas a lot of the brewers who have come along more recently have, have, have never known a time when craft beer didn't exist. And I, I'm going back to what it was that excited you, um, you know, in, in, in the early days of craft beer and trying hop-driven beers at first. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's exactly that, right? Just trying flavors that, that, that you've never tried in the beer before. I've always been very interested in beer. I mean, whenever I traveled, I would always seek out the, the local beer. But, I mean, in hindsight, it, it, was, it was obviously always the same. It was always a pale lager of some sort. It was just made in Thailand or Indonesia or, or wherever it was made, right? Um, um, 
but yeah, I always, I always wanted to try the local beer. I've never traveled to a country and 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 drink the the Carlsberg or whatever uh, that that you could get at home as well. At airports in those days, it was pretty like it was whatever generic international brand they had. It, it's a little bit like when you say now that they're all the same, I compare it to going to the hardware shop and looking at the huge sheet of white color swatches where when they're all presented together on a sheet, they look different because you're comparing them to each other. But sure. as soon as you step away and look yeah, at it by itself, it's just white. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Probably 50 sheets of white in the, in the, in the hardware shop. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, as I said, as I said, then I think I think probably Little Creatures was the first time I sort of uh, my eyes opened that uh, that that different beer didn't all have to taste the same. You know, there, there was there was something else going on in that beer. There was uh, a lot of hops, which is obviously mm. by today's standard a very small amount of hops, but uh, but back then it was it was quite a lot. And and they had some different styles there as well, you know. I mean, they they, they made some by today's standards some pretty bland beers, but uh, but they were uh, at that point in time that was very exciting. Well, that, and and that was the thing for me. It was lagers, and then you had Guinness basically, and right. you know yeah. you knew. Like I had an uncle that did, um, you know, Cooper's ales and stuff like that, but it was kind of like this esoteric um, stuff. And then I'm I'm, I'm really interested. That you referred now to little creatures being not that much because it was a quantum step up from what we knew and it sparked so much interest at the time and uh I'm, I'm trying to think back when but you know around the 2009 2010 2011 that was when the uh ibu wars were in full swing when you had brewers seeing who could make the most bitter beer that they could make um and there were discussions about what was the theoretical maximum of uh ibus and things mm. um again created a lot of excitement but have we come back a little bit towards that little creatures model where you know as the excitement's moved on yeah for sure i think so yeah i think so i mean we're back to uh or not back to i mean there's still a lot of that other stuff going on but it's it's certainly not a Nobody cares what the IBU of a beer is anymore. I mean, no, nobody cares. You know, it, 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 it's, it's not a measure of quality anymore. Um, and it kind of only was, I think, because it, it was so, it, somehow a way to measure how much hops you've actually put in there. Um, but then now we are talking more about grams per liter rather than, uh, than actual IBUs, which is kind of a pointless measure because obviously you can't get to a thousand IBU like uh, uh, some people would claim back in that day. Um, <laughs> um, and if you could, it would be <laughs> pretty, pretty unpalatable a, a bit. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I um, mean, to answer your question, yes, I mean, absolutely. We're certainly making a lot more uh, uh, balanced beer now. You know, I mean, a lot more lagers and uh, not so aggressive pale ales. Um, we've literally just received uh, released a uh, uh, an homage, you could say, to a Sharon Nevada. Uh, so that's it's, it's, it's an American pale ale like like it used to be back in the eighties, you know, not these big big hop bumps like uh, like you get nowadays that are called APAs, uh, but but yeah, what it used to be. And and again, none of that, you know, it, it's not being critical of it, but there was certainly, you, you know, 
bandwagon jumping where, well, if, if uh, 45 IBUs is good, 50 IBUs, and then it's the next person and the next person, the next person, and suddenly you are at, at these sort of just how much can we get in there or just how, um, you know, unpalatable will beer become if we if we keep chasing this right. and yeah. then you get the reaction back to it and I, I i think of the mindset that we had and i'm shouldn't attribute this to you but that you know it was craft beer was spoken about in terms of a revolution we're going to be different people are going to drink differently in the future do you think that has panned out um in you know, as we've gone longer, or is, is there still that little niche of craft beer, and the bulk of people have only shifted much, no, much no, less? No, I, I absolutely think that has panned out, and it is still panning out. Uh, I mean, there's so many more people now drinking drinking craft beer, and they might not be drinking craft beer all the time. I mean, their go-to beer might still be Heineken or something like that, but they certainly understand that there's something else out there, and. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're willing to try it. Uh, they may not like it per se, but they're not just drinking Heineken because they think there's nothing else but Heineken left, right? Uh, they're not just drinking Heineken mm. because that's what they've always done. Um, they they understand that there's something else out there and they will, they will dabble into it every now and then uh, and, and try something new. Tell me about the eight-wide eight business model. Do you still um, package and distribute and sell beer nationally or are you very much a local uh, supplier and, and, and focus very much on your local market. No, no. I mean, in New Zealand, we're very, uh, very definitely uh, nationwide. Um, uh, I mean, we have a local focus because we're here and we've got our tap room here. But uh, the, the distribution is is, is very broad, uh, uh, rather than deep in, into the local market. And we still send a lot of beer overseas as well. Uh, it's been hard in the last few years with the with the pandemic and uh, and the shipping issues. Uh, but yeah, we still send a lot of beer to Australia um, and to Southeast Asia and North America and Europe. So yeah, it goes far and wide. Well, that's interesting because again, maybe I'm a little bit blind to to the imports. And again, that goes back to you know ten years ago, eleven years ago, um, whatever was the new beer to land or the new exciting brewery to land for the first time was hyped and excited and. Uh, you don't hear that sort of hype. Maybe it's amid the clutter, um, but you don't hear that much excitement. So I wasn't sure how widely eight wide was still available uh, on this side of the Tasman. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's uh, how many breweries do you have in, in Australia now? A thousand or something like that. Uh, Six hundred and three physical breweries, according to the uh, Convoy uh, Brewery database that we maintain. Uh, brands. You know, they, they come and go. So, you know, brands are separate. Yeah. But I mean, it's a lot, is my point, right? So, I mean, you've got so many breweries there. It's, uh, and the imports that are coming in are probably a very, very small proportion of that. And certainly, I mean, the volume mm. that we set to Australia is significant for us as a small business, but it's uh, yep. in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's always not very much uh, when, when you see it in the market over there. How many liters do you make? If, if, if I know that's a question that some people are. Just to get get a size of a, a, an idea of the size of eight wide these days, uh, we're about like half a million, six hundred thousand, something like that. Okay, so so it's still, um, I mean that's that sounds like for an Australian brewery, we hear a lot of breweries talking about, um, you know, the dangerous valley where you, you you're almost at the margin where you need to grow because you're not quite profitable at you know six hundred thousand to the uh one and a half two million liters 
Um, are, are you still growing on that 600,000 or have you found a nice sustainable spot for yourselves? No, no, we're definitely still growing, but not uh, not exponentially at all. I mean, it's it's a pretty steady, steady growth. Yeah, yeah. We'll probably in, uh, in our current brewery, we'll probably max out around a million liters. Um, okay. And then uh, after that, I mean, I don't really have uh, <laughs> the strength to build another brewery, I think. So I don't know what we're going to do then. Uh, <laughs> time we might just settle down and say this is pretty good uh, or uh, we might yeah either we build a new brewery or, or start contracting out or something like that but I mean we'll see what happens you raise an interesting point I, I think when people start businesses they start it with enthusiasm and energy particularly you know when they're 13 years younger than we are now um, you, you, you start a brewery and then you go through all of the um challenges that you have to confront on a daily basis as a very small business owner you do get to a point where the risk appetite and the growth and the energy to to expand and take some of those things on again um becomes a little bit of a challenge it sounded like that that's what you were saying that once you get to your capacity at the moment um yeah that appetite may not be there we'll see what happens but i mean if we just sort of steadily grow up to that point uh, where where we maxed out in the brewery, um, I think I'd be fairly comfortable just just staying at that level. Uh, obviously, you you always kind of want to grow a bit, so we might find that other avenues to to keep the growth going. Um, but unless it's sort of like an explosive growth where we can see that, uh, oh man, if we build another brewery now, we could sell four times as much beer. Uh, then I, I I don't think I'd bother <laughs> building another brewery straight away. Um, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but again, you're. Um, I mean, I'm, I've had the impression for a while that your growth has been very organic. You know, it's been 13 years to get to that mark. You started off as a nomadic brewer. Well, not a nomad brewer, a cuckoo brewer. You were working at Renaissance in those days, both brewing for them and then making mm. your own beer in your own time. So that allowed you to create that excitement without the huge capital investment um, before you were uh, in, in what you said about nine years ago, um, built your own brewery. Um, have you had to expand it much since then? And has that approach de-risked your business to some extent? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it was very confident having having a, a customer base and a, and a market to, to, to satisfy before you actually had to uh, invest all that cash into building an actual brewery. Um, so for sure, that was a, it was a very comfortable way to start from a business point of view. Um, have we expanded since then? I mean, we've added more tanks, yes, and stuff. Uh, and we can still fit a few more tanks in the brewery if, uh, if, if we needed to. Um, but other than that, no, not a, not a big, uh, not a big investment in further, 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 uh, equipment and stuff. It's more an investment in, in people to, to, to help us grow, I guess. Have, have you worked to a strategy when you first started brewing in New Zealand? Was there a, you know, a, a business plan and a strategy or was it very much the, the, the passion and then taking opportunities as, as you went along? I mean, we did have business plans and we've had numerous business plans along the way, but uh, it's always sort of, you know, been something that we thought we kind of had to do. Uh, even though we don't have any other investors other than myself and my wife, uh, it's not like we had to go out and, and pitch it to people. But uh, um, 
reading books and stuff about re- starting a business, uh, we thought that we need to have a business plan, so so we wrote one. Um, what that said, honestly, I can't remember, but it was nothing <laughs> of the sort. I think the first business plan was to like brew a batch a month, maybe, and then and that would get uh, bills and, and stuff like that, and that went out the window very, very quick. Yeah. Well, in in that case, do you feel that you've had an advantage in some way it just being you and your wife, that you make decisions for yourselves without that external pressure of having to justify to other parties who may not necessarily be involved in the day-to-day operations of the brewery? It certainly was in the beginning. In the, in the beginning, we were certainly able to move very, very quick and not uh, not have to wait for any any decisions to be made. I mean, when there was uh, beer to be sold, we just brewed, right? And we just made new beers and uh, signed on new distributors and importers around the world and uh, yeah, just, just got on with it. And it was a very, very quick process. Um, and that was definitely an advantage back back in that day when it was sort of more of a, a wild west in the market. Um, nowadays, obviously, the, the 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 team is bigger and the competition on the market is a lot bigger as well, and uh, the money is bigger. So uh, uh, it's 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 maybe not so much of an advantage right now. I think I am an accidental business owner myself, um, and I've never really had a business plan other than to create content that I value and fortunately other people yeah. seem to value that as well. I own my business myself and when I so I actually use this podcast as a learning uh, which is where what drives a lot of the questions um, and one of the insights I've had is by owning the business I don't have to compromise to anybody else's comfort level about the decisions I make. You know, I don't have to um, accommodate anybody else's view of what growth should be so long as I'm comfortable with the decisions that I'm making. And I, to yep. a large extent, haven't compromised uh, on, on, on that approach. Have you found being the master of your own domain or in the masters uh, of your own domain with you and your wife that that's allowed you to continue to make the beers that you wanted to make? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was again. I mean, there was there was no pressure of having to make uh, a lager and a six pack or something like that to uh, to 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 grow the volume. Um, um, and certainly back when when we were contract brewing, there was no need at all to do that kind of stuff because all we needed to do was uh, just pay myself and her, um, and yeah, yeah, just make the beer that we wanted to make. And be able to grow the brand in the way that we wanted to grow it. At, at the same time, once you've got staff who are relying on you to be paid each week, that still becomes yeah. a bit of yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, it's obviously a different different story now when we've got about twenty employees that uh, that we have a responsibility to uh, to <laughs> to pay on a on a weekly basis. Uh, uh, we kind of have to look a bit more at what beers will actually sell uh, rather than just making the beers that, that, that we want to drink ourselves. I'm just remembering back uh, the hop wides, the, the, the very bold beers. I'm just looking at your website now, looking at some of the fresh beers you, you've, you've uh, made. Um, a Session Red, Small Poppy, a, um, a Texas Brown Ale, uh, a Munich Lager. Are they beers that you envisage making when you started? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, our very, very first beer that we made was a brown ale, um, a hobby brown ale. Uh, so, so yes, uh, those were the kind of beers that we wanted to make. It wasn't just all about the hops being being the biggest and the baddest mm. hop hop uh, forward beer. Uh, 
It was about uh, exploring styles that you couldn't otherwise get in New Zealand. Um, and those beers there would definitely be, be on that list. Increasingly, there are fewer and fewer styles that you can't get. I, I got in, in, into home brewing like you, you know, 20 something years ago to try and make beers that I couldn't find anywhere else. Um, but as soon as yeah. that, that became less attractive to me once I could find them. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How would you describe your approach to brewing these days? Ah, uh, <laughs> I mean that's that that that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I'd like to think that we are still uh, fairly innovative, you know, and uh, we've got a very very broad range. Uh, you know, I mean, some breweries only make uh, IPAs, and then they dabble mm-hmm. a little bit in, into other beers. Uh, for sure, IPAs are still uh, a large part of our sales, but uh, but we try and spread it out and do a lot of uh, different styles as well in smaller volumes. So variety, maybe I'd say, is 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 our <laughs> uh, approach to brewing. Um, but yeah, I mean, as as you said before as well, uh, you you kind of have to make sure that the beer is going to sell as well. So um, we can't get get too obscure these days, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you've used the innovation word. What does that mean these days? You know, ten years ago, innovation was new in a, in a lot of ways. You know, brewers pushing boundaries. These days, mm. if there are boundaries, some of them seem to be pushed for the sake of it, um, you know, uh, for, for, for the headline as opposed to the outcome. Yeah. Are, are there still innovations w- 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 within the traditional brewing, short of new ingredients coming on and new hops uh, coming on? Uh, I don't know. Way. I mean, I, I guess our main outlet for innovation these days would be our barrel aging project, uh, where we do a lot of fun stuff. Um, I mean, in terms of, of beer styles, we don't really develop new beer styles anymore, I guess. I mean, everything kind of feels like it's been done already. Like uh, 10 years ago, we started making Belgian IPAs and things like that. And that was all new or mixing uh, mixing big hops with Belgian yeast. Who, who would have ever thought of that, right? And that was innovation back then, right? And hoppy porters and or Cascadian dark ale, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Black IPAs, white IPAs and all that stuff. Uh, red IPAs and blah, blah. <laughs> brood, brood IPA, cold IPA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, nowadays, if, if you mix two styles, I don't know if I really call that innovation anymore because uh, it's a fairly easy thing to do. It's not as hardcore as it was back then. What, what is innovation these days? And you, you, you mentioned barrel aging, but you know, the, the Belgians have been doing that for uh, a while. We've sort of gone back into a much bigger arc mm. to a time that barrel aging and the mm. uncontrollability of that um, or, or, or the difficulty in controlling that process uh, over industrial brewing um you know has become attractive again yeah i mean it has obviously but it has been for a while as well so i mean i wouldn't even really say that that's all that innovative but i mean we take we take these beers and we mix it with fruits that they that the belgians have have maybe never never used in their brewing it's certainly not traditional stuff uh we got a a, a flanders brown coming out at the moment uh with uh with the chinese black tea that kind of kind of tastes a bit like tobacco, uh, and the idea there was that we wanted to make a tobacco-inspired sort of beer, uh, but we couldn't use actual tobacco, uh, so so we used this tea instead. Um, 
So, I mean, is that innovation? I guess maybe to some extent, but I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, everybody is putting weird stuff in their beer. And at some point, maybe it's not that innovative anymore, I guess. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean to, to answer your question, I don't really know. It, it's been a very long time since I've seen anything new come up that I thought, oh, yeah, that's, 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 that's really cool. I would have never thought of that myself, right? Because most things has been thought of already. And, and it's just variations on a theme. Yeah. Do you think that there's a risk that with that constant search for innovation that people will get bored with it? Most of the innovation nowadays is probably coming up with, uh, with, with new beers, right? Or, or new brands or new, new, new labels uh, and stuff, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of people making, uh, and we're certainly guilty of it as well to some extent, um, making very similar beers uh, with different names and different labels uh, from time to time. Um, and, I mean, yes, yes, I mean, people will probably see that, yeah, I mean, that's just another IPA. How is that different from the last one? And they, I mean, they are different. Obviously, we use different hops and uh, different malts and stuff. But I mean, it's back to that uh, shade of white kind of thing, right? I mean, mm. the last the last uh, ten West Coast IPAs we've done, you know, I mean, they they are very similar in terms of uh, style and strength and color. Uh, different hops, yes, but unless you try them side by side, can you can you really tell the difference? I'm not sure. And, and and I guess that is one of the fundamental questions that I, I, I grapple with is it you know, it, it sounds very difficult for a brewery to establish a core range. You know, you've got consumers uh, and retailers wanting the latest new exciting thing. Um, yeah. But that's also very hard from a business point of view. Making the same thing multiple times is rather than making something new um every time uh is a yeah. huge business challenge you know how how do you reconcile that as a brewery i mean we just do our thing right i mean we make new uh new ipas all the time and then people like them and uh they buy them and we make uh different brown ales and different belkin styles and so forth and then uh, and pe people like it you know i mean people always want to try something new but I mean, it will probably be better for everybody if uh, if we just made a made one IPA and we could make ten times as much of it and bring the price down. Yeah, right? uh, because it's, it's it's economies of scale. Um, but yeah, and I think I think yeah, long ter long term the, the the market will go that way. There will be more uh, there will be more six packs on the market and six packs of bigger beers that you usually only see in a in a single can these days. Um, but yeah, yeah. So people, we get more economies of scale, and therefore we can lower the prices, and uh, people get a better deal, and uh, and they will sort of hone in on, on on the things that they like, and they will probably the market will probably get a little bit less cluttered, I think, uh, in, in in the next few years. Less cluttered in the terms of breweries closing, or less cluttered in terms oh, of less cluttered in the way that uh, that you don't have a hundred breweries each making twenty different beers, but you probably have a hundred breweries each making ten different beers. How would you describe your approach to building your brand? You know, has, have you had a strategy? Have you had you know a, a focus on where you wanted the brand to be, or have, again, does it come back to Soren Eriksson making the beers that you want to make and just trusting that there are enough people that feel the same way about the the, the product that you're able to command the price that you need? 
No, I mean, it's certainly not just me anymore. I mean, we've got a team of people in uh, both in sales and brewing um, that all help uh, develop the new products and then come up with the with new new beers, new styles, new names, new branding and stuff like that. In terms of where we're sort of trying to position the brand, I mean, we're just trying to, I guess, stay ahead of the curve is probably our, our main focus, I guess, in terms of, of branding and the, and be on the forefront of uh, <laughs> the latest and the greatest, which is still IPAs uh, to a large extent. How hard is that? Because, again, you speak to a lot of brewers and when you are doing a succession of you know, beers that are fundamentally different recipes, even though it's malt water, hops and yeast, and uh, you know, that process is the same. But it, it takes time to dial a, a beer in, you know, to, to get it right, to get the balance right, to make sure if you're brewing something once, how hard is it, you know, if you're using a new hop or you're using a new formulation, how hard is it to hit the mark that you are happy with? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would largely say that uh, whenever we make a new beer, we usually hit like a 95% almost on the mark kind of thing, right? It's not 100% when we make a new beer, but uh, I mean, we have a generally generally a fairly good idea of what, what this new hop or this new yeast or this new malt is going to do for the beer. Um, and we would generally hit there in, 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 in the mid-90s of what the perfect beer would have been in, in that respect. If we uh, if we had the opportunity to make that beer ten times, then we would slowly dial it in. But more often than not, yeah, we only brew the beer once. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for the industry to have um, constant innovation without perfection, or you know, hitting that mark that you would would otherwise be? Um, clearly, it's good for consumers because that's what consumers want. But is there a cost in the industry of that sort of approach? No, nah, but I mean, if it's uh, if it's good for the consumer, it's good for us, right? I mean, we are, we're here to uh, to satisfy a demand that that people have, right? And uh, if that's what people want, then uh, it's good for them and it's good for us, absolutely. Um, but you could certainly argue, uh, as I kind of said before, that uh, that if instead of making a uh, fifty different beers every year, we only made a uh, ten or twenty, then uh, we could uh, dial it in and make a arguably better product uh, because we get those last few percentages. But I mean, it is only a few percent, right? I mean, the beer is almost there, I guess you could yeah. say. And you could certainly argue that uh, with that many breweries out there, if, if every brewery had that approach and uh, and and just tried to focus on, 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 a, on a few really, really good beers, there would still be hundreds of different beers in the market and there would still be plenty <laughs> of uh, variation for, for people to drink. I mean, even the 600 breweries in Australia, right? So even mm. if uh, if uh, all of them only made one beer a year, right, and really nailed it, right, really made a great beer, uh, then people could still drink two new beers every single day. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's still a lot of variety. I, I'm, I'm interested because uh, at the start of the chat, you referred to you know the, the thing that we always used to talk about, the fizzy yellow liquid or the pale yellow swill, um, which still has that pejorative element um, to it that we're still dissing those beers that gave rise to the craft beer, um, you know, renaissance revolution. And yet you just have said we're here to satisfy what the beer drinker wants. And I've, I mean, my personal journey has been to go from, you know, dismissing those beers to realizing actually there's a lot of people that are perfectly happy with those 
um, pale yellow swill beers. And you know, should we look at them as a legitimate part of the beer market now and stop referring to them that way, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that's maybe a bit childish to uh, to keep beating that drum. Um, I, I think, I mean, again, uh, as suggested, the, the consumer is, is right. And if mm. the consumer wants that, then uh, that's no... Who, who who are we to judge that, right? Yeah, it's 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 certainly part of the market and it belongs in the market. And uh, there's a lot of people that absolutely prefer Heineken over over a hazy IPA, right? So there's no need to uh, to get rid of that. I mean, I guess maybe uh, the more important point is to sort of educate people where the beer is coming from, right? Uh, when when you buy a beer, does uh, does the money go to a global uh, conglomerate? Or does it go to a small business around the corner? Um, you know, I mean, kind of, kind of, yeah. More, more uh, a soulful <laughs> exploration <laughs> yeah. of, of where, 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 where things come from and where, where things are going and and what kind of society you want to be part of. That's mm. obviously not to say that uh, that people that drink big beer are bad people. Obviously not. You know, I mean, uh, we all drive uh, cars that are made by global conglomerates. And we wouldn't buy a car from a, a homemade car from down the street, right? Uh, um, so there's certainly also a, a, a space for that in the market. I just think people need to be aware of, of where it's coming from and then they can make their own decisions. What do you think the challenges are um, as have become as the industry has grown as rapidly? I know that you've struggled to... Um, you, you had a brewer, it was hard to get permission for him to stay in the country, I believe. Um, you know, so, so there seems to be a bit of a brewer shortage um, that we're experiencing is that a significant challenge still um we've been really lucky in our brewery with staff retention uh, so i mean we've had the same team in in uh, on, on the brewing floor for the last five six seven years uh very little change out so we haven't really had to hire many people and, and look for them but uh but i do imagine i do imagine it will be hard to find good staff yes yeah mm. It's a small industry with that many players in the in the field. If you have uh, New Zealand, two hundred plus breweries uh, that all need to employ a brewer, uh, you can see that there's not that many of them around. Um, mm. So, what are the challenges that you face as a small business owner? Uh, you know, making beer in a rapidly maturing market. I mean, at the moment, in the last year, it's been the uh, the rise in the cost of goods. Really, you know, I mean, uh, every everything. For everything from malt to hops to cans to mm. power and gas, everything uh, and freight, uh, everything has gone through the roof. And uh, um, we can't just raise our prices in a proportional manner because then we'd be selling uh, $35 six packs out there and uh, mm. it'd probably be a very hard sell. Um, so, yeah, at the moment, it's just uh, it's trying to adjust to that new new environment. Uh, and seeing how how that environment pans out and uh, and, and continues. Uh, and how how are you coping with that? I mean, we're coping. Uh, we've made small adjustments to our pricing, uh, specifically uh, in the six packs, where where there's a lot of material cost uh, in in our in our seasonal releases uh, is is less of an impact because there's not that much packaging cost. The most of the the cost there is uh, is our own labor and and, and things like that and uh, and creative. Uh, creative input um but yeah i mean hopefully it's not gonna continue uh we are hoping we'll see, see a bit of uh, a reverse but it's probably going to be at least another year before uh, before things start sort of getting more normal or 
or everybody has to raise their prices so so we can do it as well you know but you can't just do it when when nobody else is doing it and, and and what are you hearing from your fellow brewers um you know are, are they struggling do, do you think that you know is the market growing is the price you know do people value beer enough i mean i think most people are definitely struggling a bit at the moment for those reasons for the cost of of goods uh the market as such i think is still growing um uh, you know i mean that there's customers out there that wants to drink our beer and then sales are certainly not down as such uh it's just that the cost of making the beer is getting getting much higher mm. um so i think it'll just it will, it will be a blip in time you know i mean you look that back to, back to it in 10 years time and you you'll be able to see uh, uh a blip on on the graph of I guess profitability in, in small brewing businesses or any small business. I imagine every single small business in the world has mm. has the same issues at the moment. If we were a, a, a giant company producing a commodity that nobody else really did, like if we were Fonterra, for example, which is our large uh, dairy company in New Zealand, uh, who controls probably ninety nine percent of the dairy, uh, they if their cost of goods rise, they will just increase the price of butter. Right and everything is fine, you know. The 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 margin remains the same, and everybody's happy. All the mm. shareholders are happy, and blah blah blah. But a small company like us can't just do that because I mean, there's, there's way too many competitors on the market to uh, to have that kind of kind of pull. Mm. And even I mean, even Line Nation and DB probably couldn't do that because people would just drink something else. Mm. So what what's next for Eight Wide? What are you working on, or what what is exciting you uh, as you look ahead? In the last year, we've gone through a, a big um, uh, in, in 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 terms of sales. Uh, we've we've switched from a, a distributor model to having our own in-house sales team. So uh, the last year, we've been building that, and that's uh, just starting to sort of bear fruit at the moment. Uh, so that's quite exciting. Uh, we're shifting more, as I said before. We we export quite a lot of beer to all over the world. We're shifting more towards a local model. Where we are actively trying to sell more beer in New Zealand rather than than sending it overseas. Um, part of that is environmental reasons, and the other part is uh, uh, freshness. You know, I mean, the beers that we do send overseas are bigger beers and barrel aged beers that can handle the travel. But to a large extent, I think beer will always be a local product. Um, drinking imported beer or seeking out imported beer in the long term. Uh, it's probably not going to be that attractive for people, at least on the other side of the planet. I think between Australia and New Zealand, there's a lot of fluency, and and that's 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 fine. Australia will mm. always be a big part of our market, but uh, the rest of the world will probably start dwindling out. I think. I agree, hundred percent. That beer should be local, and I think it should be a reason to travel as opposed to, uh, you know, we should travel. Yeah, beer absolutely. shouldn't has been a, a mantra of mine. I'm interested in the move in, in distribution. Was the distributor model um, a good way to start, but it makes more sense longer term to have your own people on the road building your own brand? Yeah, it was. I mean, I guess it was kind of the same idea as uh, as contract brewing and not having uh, having the cost of uh, of an actual brewery from the beginning. At the same uh, token, it was. It was less risky having distributors, uh, but also we've never really had a distributor that that did well for us. You know that they actually treated the brand with the with the respect that we thought it should, and uh, and put in the time and effort that that we thought they should. 
Um, so, I mean, it's been a decision that we've had in the back of our minds for, for, for many years. Um, and we were, we were actively planning towards that. But then uh, about a year and a half ago, our current distributor actually went out of business and made the decision very easy for us. Right? We were about to exit that agreement anyways, but uh, uh, there was a bit of feed dragging and procrastination. Uh, so when they went out of business, it was, it was, it was all go. And uh, yeah, yeah, it started from there. That was Quench, because um, I was reading that before. Yep. So would you have liked a little bit more runway before you made that choice? No, I mean, as I said, we had already been actively working on it for six months to a year at least. Uh, and it's it, it, even before that, it, it, it had always been our plan, but we hadn't really worked towards it. So we already had some of the people on board that, uh, that we needed to, to drive that part of the business. Uh, and we had thought about a lot of uh, uh, mechanisms to, to, to exit the agreement and, and hit the ground running ourselves. Um, it probably came a few months too early, uh, but other than that, it was uh, it was probably pretty good to uh, to just get thrown in at the deep end and just go for it. Um, other, otherwise, we might have dragged our feet for <laughs> for God knows how long. It, it 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 sounds like the approach that you've taken over the thirteen years is is the definition almost of organic. That you've not pushed the business harder than. It, it, it could handle and it, it gives a fairly secure business um, that, that is fairly robust through challenging times like COVID or distributors going out of business. Is that a fair takeaway? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is, it is pretty tough at the moment uh, to run a business. But yes, I do think that uh, because of the sort of slower approach that we've taken uh, it, uh, uh, and just, yeah, growing it organically. Yes, as you say, absolutely. It, it's, it's made it more more uh, more stable yes absolutely we're not as uh, vulnerable to uh to fluctuations that are that are out of uh, out of out of our control as as some other businesses might be yeah. you uh are or maybe you are a two-time unless you've been uh, winning again uh new zealand poker champion so you certainly understand oh, yeah. risk and reward um and chance has, has that guided your approach to the the business at all you haven't sort of doubled down or gone all in um on, on the flip of one card no no exactly yeah 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 and it's certainly uh, uh that that side of things have certainly helped me understand yeah better yeah the 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 risk and rewards yes yes so, so i mean i'm often looking at a at opportunities and thinking about uh well what is the risk and what is the reward basically and then weighing it up um and if it's it's too much risk, uh, then even if the reward is is, is big as well, uh, we're probably not going to go for it. But uh, but I mean that said though, I mean I also understand that if 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 the reward is so big that you just can't you can't ignore the risk, right? Oh, you, you gotta have to ignore the risk um, to get there. But I mean an example, for example, is uh, I always say like we we used to send a, a lot of beer to China, um, and um, people were like. Uh, Saying, "Oh, that's that's great. China is so huge. You can you can sell millions of liters of beer in China." Uh, and I'm like, "Yeah, but if we do that, then we also have to build a much bigger brewery." And I will <laughs> certainly never uh, invest several million dollars in the brewery to support China, for example, because the market is so fickle. Yes, you might be able to sell a billion liters of beer, but next year it might be zero, and then you're sitting with this giant brewery 
to support a market that is way too risky to uh, to put that kind of cash into. That's an interesting observation because we've seen that uh, a little bit, particularly over the last two or three years, breweries that had potentially secured some wide-ranging distribution through the major retailers um, have have expanded, um, which is a lot of eggs to be in one fairly um, risky basket, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you only have one customer, uh, unless unless you've uh, unless you've been in business with that customer for many, many, many years, even decades, you know, and know that this is fairly stable, right? That's uh, it's a very risky approach to take. So, Ron Erickson, it's been great catching up uh, with you after such a long time. It's been a, even it's been a long time since I've been in New Zealand, so I really need to get across and uh, very much looking forward to checking out the, uh, the the Eight Wide Brewery. Absolutely, anytime. Let me know and beers on me. And that was Soren Ericsson. If you like what we do here at Radio Brews News and maybe even would like to see us meet 13 years in this, our 12th year, you can help us out. If you're a business, you can advertise the show or sponsor the website. If you're a listener, you can invest a little of your time by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service, and that really helps other people to find us. Or you can be part of the conversation at the Facebook group on Facebook. Just search for Radio Brews News, or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au. We'll be back later this week for our discussion about all of the news of the week, and we look forward to joining you then. Bye.